welcome to the 39th edition of the Traveling Tea Radio Show. I'm your host, Friedel. talking about cycling lightly loaded. That's a bit of a change for us since we normally go with four panniers and a big extra bag on the back of our racks, all very heavily loaded. But we found a good friend named Stein who we met here in Holland and he's going to tell us how he keeps his bags feather light and hopefully we'll be able to learn a few things as we head off to Spain. A big welcome to the show, and thanks very much for listening in. I suppose, in a way, I should start with an apology, because it's been so long, once again, since I've done the last podcast. But, you know, that's just the way life is at the moment. We're uh, working full-time and running around doing all kinds of things, writing a book and seeing friends, and we just don't have that unstructured, unplanned time that we used to have when we were cycling around the world. I've been finding it pretty hard to get podcasts done, so sorry about that. I'm afraid you're just going to have to bear with me and take each one as a little treasure when it does appear on the blog. As I'm actually recording this podcast, we're getting ready to go off to Spain. We'll be heading off in the next days, and we're going to fly into Madrid and then cycle just south of Madrid for three weeks in the Andalusia region of Spain. Really, really looking forward to it, and one of the things that's going to be a change from previous trips is that we're making a real effort to lighten our bags. Now, part of the reason for that is a purely practical one. At the moment, we only have one back rack each for our bicycles. Uh, The racks that we used on our world trip are still in Canada along with a lot of our other things. And we don't want to buy new tubers racks because the ones that we have in Canada are perfectly good. So when we go home uh, in May or so, then we'll pick those tubers racks up and we'll be back to cycling probably with two front and two back panniers. But for the moment, we have to make do with rather lighter weight racks and only back ones. And that means we can only take two bags. So that, of course, means lightening your setup. And on top of that, we just feel that when we were going around the world, we took a lot of things that we probably didn't necessarily need, or at least we certainly don't need them for a three-week trip. Maybe when you're going for three years, there are some things you carry around because you might occasionally need them, but on a three-week trip, there are a lot of things you can do without. So we've been going through all our stuff and uh, trying to make our bags lighter and make everything fit into just two back panniers. Of course, when you first start doing this, you look at all your things and you think, how can I possibly get rid of any of this? Well, that's why we decided to call in the help of a friend. His name is Stein. We met him during a weekend where we were all doing a bike maintenance workshop. And Stein has been on all kinds of longer bicycle trips, anything up to about six months. And he's always traveled very, very lightly with only about 10 kilograms of gear. So we had him over for dinner and we asked him how he does it. My name is Stein de Klerk. And uh, I'm, I'm from the Netherlands, probably been traveling uh, for about five years uh, throughout the last 15 years, more or less. So I've been in and out of jobs a lot and, and uh, different accommodations and things like that. I started uh, cycle touring basically because I got a um, climbing accident and then I got an ankle fracture because of that. And I couldn't walk properly. And then the way for me to travel was by bicycle. So I, I got interested in that and I, 
Uh, I've been cycling all my life, being Dutch, you know, it's, we, we get born on bicycles here. So, yeah, that's, that's how that started. And uh, I just liked the sort of the speed of seeing sort of landscape. And, and I had all the sort of the, the camping experience. So that sort of was quite sort of natural step. And where are some of the places that you've been on your bicycle? Well, I, I've never done a trip longer than uh, six months. So I, I've, some people, they go away and they come back years later. Um, I've done six-month trip, four-month trip, uh, two-month trip, uh, and then a couple of times, sort of three weeks, four weeks. After, you know, five, five months, I get a little bit tired of the cycling, and I, I like to do something else for, for a while. So I find myself having to park the bike and, and buy a backpack and, and go walking for a couple of weeks and then, <laughs> and then come back sort yeah. of thing. But where I've been... I started off in Europe, so I did a six-month trip uh, through Europe. I flew to Italy, unpacked the bike in Pisa somewhere in November, and then sort of started cycling around um, Italy and then back along the French Mediterranean coast into Spain, all the way back to the Netherlands again, So that and I took my time for that. Then I went to Tasmania and did a few weeks there, sort of like a month trip, I went to Iceland for uh, three weeks. I went to Morocco for a month. <clears throat> then I did this um, sort of month and a half trip in uh, Canada and and um, in America. I did this um, Great Divide mountain bike route, yeah, which is uh, quite well known. It's a really really nice trip, um, but half sort of slightly more than halfway. So I cycled from uh, Banff to Denver and uh, and then I had to go back. Then recently I, I went to South America to Chile, Argentina uh, for four months. It's no yeah. small amount of the world that you've covered. <laughs> no, but I'm always impressed by people then that, that managed to end up cycling from, from London to Sydney, for example, stuff like that. But uh, that that's not really what, what, uh, what I think I'll ever plan to do. And one of the reasons that I asked you to do an interview, we met at a bicycle workshop, a mechanical mm -hmm. workshop a few weeks ago. And while we were talking in between the uh, work that we were doing, you told us about how you travel very lightweight, which was very impressive for us because we're quite heavy bike tourists. We usually carry four panniers and we load them down with lots of books. So maybe you can tell people what kind of setup you tour with. Could you introduce us to your style of touring? I'm I'm a I'm a lightweight guy, and I don't have the sort of the engine to to uh, to to cycle with a really heavy um, bike. And uh, when I started uh, tour cycling, uh, I found my found myself pushing the bike a lot, and uh, I didn't really like that very much. And uh, so I I started thinking about ways of sort of reducing the weight. And uh, I've done a lot of uh, sort of climbing in the past. For me, sort of alpine climbing uh, technique was always the most appropriate, lightweight and fast. So I learned a lot from that and I sort of started applying that to uh, my cycling uh, setup as well. So every time I, I finish a trip, I have a whole list of ideas on how to reduce weight and to, to make things sort of more efficient. And um, I've taken a lot of inspiration from... Um, ultra endurance um, self-supported cycling races that they do in the states it seems to be sort of evolving into a whole new discipline of itself where they they don't actually cycle with racks but they have these um, frame bags 
that are very often custom made for that individual bicycle that they have so that fits inside the triangle of the, the bicycle frame and has a, a bed roll sort of strapped to the handlebars and then usually like uh, a dry bag underneath the saddle that then also acts as a sort of a, a mud guard. And these guys, they, they cycle maybe with a, like a five, six kilogram camping gear setup and they manage to do that to, to cover ground across snowy passes and all the way down to the Mexican border where it gets really, really warm. So they, they, they can adjust to all those uh, climate uh, uh, ranges. And um, so I find that really inspiring. Um, but I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't do the trips that I do and be comfortable with that because I don't have the, the pace that they do. And, and they sort of, they really go for that sort of endurance and, and, and hardship because it's part of, uh, part of the, the whole idea behind these races. So I, I have a slightly more touring approach probably um, maybe a, a setup of nine, eight, nine, ten kilos tri weight and then that's excluding the food, water and fuel. Yeah, so that, that, that I find really uh, sort of interesting to, to explore that and to, to be really agile on the bike, you know, to, to be able to go off onto dirt roads and, and mountain bike trails where other tourists would normally not venture because, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to, uh, to deal with the terrain. So it's, uh... Can you give us an idea of what your 8, 9, 10 kilograms of gear encompasses? Because I think for a lot of people, if they're used to doing fully loaded touring, they have no idea how you get down to those bare essentials. So what, what do you have and maybe what do you not have? Yeah, that's that's a really tough question. And, um, you know, the, the other, the other um, sort of way thinking applies too. When I see somebody with a fully loaded uh, touring bike, I always wonder what on earth have they got with them that they knew all the space for, you know? So I, I'm not really aware of it that much anymore because I, this is sort of a way I've been packing my bags for, you know, for a long time. But I think, I think what is really important is that once you start um, looking at gear, is, is that you always consider, you know, how much does this weigh and, and can I reduce that by buying something else that weighs slightly less? So once you start into getting into that mindset, then, for example, I used to have a, a Gore-Tex jacket that maybe weighed 800 grams. Now I have a Gore-Tex jacket that weighs 200 grams and folds up to the size of a tennis ball. So that, that makes a lot of difference. So I still have the Gore-Tex jacket, but it's now it's pack light material as opposed to triple layer. So it's all these little things. So I, I try and sort of... Uh, budget the stuff that I take sort of the weight down to as as, min, as, as little as possible. So I'm I'm uh, I used to have stainless steel pots. Now I have the titanium things, you know. But I I think they're worth it. They're not that much more expensive, and I I make I, I get the use out of them. So if you if you use them, you know, for a year cooking, then I think it's perfectly justifiable to spend uh, the twenty euros more. To, to buy something that is half the weight. And I remember when we first met, you said you'd done some modifications to your tent as well. You bought a Hilleberg tent, which is normally quite lightweight anyway when you buy it, but you've modified it further to make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it really surprising when I got the, the Acto. I unpacked it and I was amazed by all the, the stuff that was on there that was completely unnecessary, like these big leather patches with the name Hilleberg uh, stamped on them. I want, you know... Why am I buying a lightweight tent when they stick all this heavy stuff on there? So usually what I do with equipment is um, that, is that I, I have a, a good look over, uh, I have a good look over it in the shop and then see, uh, you know, is it light? Is it sort of made with a light 
Wade's sort of idea in mind is there a lot of unnecessary stuff. And if there's unnecessary stuff on it, how easy is to get get it uh, uh, so get rid of it? So then, then what I normally, for example, with my tents, I just pitch them in the living room and I, I uncork a nice bottle of wine and I uh, start sitting looking at it and then you know, I'll figure out what I can get rid of and how, how I can reduce the tent, still have the functionality but reduce the weight. And then, and then usually there's also lots of stuff like you can get different packs for it. Now, if you, if you need, for example, the Hilleberg, I think, I might be wrong, but it might come with maybe 12 stakes. And uh, and then it turns out that you can actually pitch the tent perfectly well with four. So you get rid of the eight, and then you re- reduce, you, you swap the four that you're left with, with ones that are made from titanium. So that shaves off another eight gram each. So that's another... Uh, 36 gram you know so and if you do that with everything that just adds up so once you you cut off all the the the, the name tags and you re- uh, replace all the bits of string with uh, with a nice lightweight string and uh, you'll be amazed you know there's suddenly uh, a tent that you thought was light is suddenly 200 grams lighter still and with the Hilleberg for example because it's such a well-known lightweight tent there's lots of things that you can get for it you can get lighter poles for it and there's lighter aluminium poles there's even carbon poles for it but i i don't use that because i don't think they're uh, sturdy enough for bike bike touring because they're a bit vulnerable especially if they get sort of um, pressure uh, they they might crack or and if you're stuck without a 10 pole then it's a problem a, a one one pole 10 becomes a little bit useless so, uh, <laughs> unless you sleep standing upwards <laughs> yeah yeah or you 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 um you use it as a baby bag or something <laughs> so that's that's what i did with the with the tent and for example there's these beautiful lines these days um gu- uh, guy lines made of dyneema or spectra and they're incredibly strong and they don't absorb any water. And that, that's another thing. So for, for example, tents, they tend to be moist when you pack them and the lines, they become a lot, lot heavier. So it's really interesting to look for lines that don't absorb a lot of water and also make sure your tent, you pack your dra- tent as dry as possible. So When possible. It's not always yeah, possible, no. is it, sometimes? <laughs> and once you've done all this mm-hmm. and you set it on tour with your very small amount of luggage, what effect do you find that it has on your daily routine? How does it change the routine of touring for you? One of the things that I really appreciate about the, the, the light touring idea is that the bike becomes much more agile so I, I climb much easier I you know I, I can pick it up and put it in things or on buses or in trains not that I do that a lot but it, it's not just it's not such a cumbersome object and um, um, if I need to change the tires out I don't have to sort of spend a lot of time unpacking a lot of stuff i can you know i can just handle the bike really easily yeah especially the agility of the bike I, I really enjoy that part of it you know that i have a light bike that i can throw around on the trail and avoid the potholes and 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 it's not sort of sort of such a, a heavy object and i suppose it's, you can go a lot further in one day as well it must give you more yeah, flexibility about that's that's true too and 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 it's it's strange how that works so as soon as you you lighten your your setup. You can cover more ground, so you can get to places more quickly. That you where you can get supplies or water or uh, a good camping spot. So you're not you don't need to rely on being self-sufficient in places 
where there's no uh, nothing, no no um, no facilities. It becomes like um, it fits with the whole idea. So you you get to places more easily. So you don't you don't need to bring as much food. You don't need as much water. So your setup becomes lighter again. So you can cover more ground again. So it, it becomes even less necessary to to have all your contingency in terms of food and water. And then so if you have lighter uh, equipment, then the bike can become lighter as well then the bike becomes faster again. So then the luggage becomes lighter again. So it's sort of, it has a knock-on effect on all these things. So if you go really heavy, then you have to have all this food and water to to be able to cover the distance that you that you can also cover much more quickly when you have a light setup. You see how that works? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. What I'm wondering is, has there ever been a time when you were caught out when you thought, oh, I really wished that I'd packed something that I don't have now because I really put the emphasis on being lightweight. Was there ever a time when you were caught in a storm or something happened and you thought, hmm? Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, it gets a little bit uncomfortable um, when you know you have to get somewhere because you've run out of water, because you don't have the water to spend the night or it would become really uncomfortable because you wouldn't be able to uh, have a hot drink and have a, have breakfast in the morning, for example. And then it's just a question of keeping going. And, and uh, I tend not to cycle much in the dark, but then I just keep going uh, until I get somewhere. So, yeah, you get caught out sometimes. I guess you get caught out on any tour. It's not Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's always plenty of times that you can't find a camping spot or uh, a, level, a level patch of ground or something like that. So it's always, there's always this little tension going on when it sort of gets to the end of the day where, where I'm going to spend the night. But as I was saying earlier, um, doing sort of your research is really important too. I was thinking about this, uh, obviously you were going to interview me uh, this evening and I, I thought about a few examples. And although I wasn't cycling at the time, I was in Tibet and uh, we were in the absolute middle of nowhere, and suddenly this this local Tibetan boy comes cycling across the desert on this single speed Indian bike, and he had nothing with him, and he was going from what seemed nowhere to nowhere, but he didn't need anything because he had the local knowledge, and that that is the sort of because he knew that he was going to end up somewhere, he didn't therefore he didn't require to bring anything with him. And it's exactly that. That's what it sort of boils down to. If you know exactly where you're going, you need virtually nothing. Because so I I met this um, this English guy once in France, and he he was tour cycling, and he he didn't have anything with him. He had a three speed bike that he he uh, borrowed from a, a friend. He had the clothes on his back, and that was it. And he'd been cycling for three weeks. And what he did, he would uh, wash his clothes in the evening when he was having a shower and then dry them while he was sleeping and then he'd have dry clean clothes the next day. He didn't need anything. So, you know, there's so many degrees of, uh, of, of needing stuff, you know. And, and so if you're in a place where you have all the, um, yeah, the sort of the, um, the services, then why would you bring, you know, all that equipment to, to, uh, to be completely self-sufficient? And that's what, especially people in the West start out with, you know, they start cycling and they come through a village every every five kilometers and still they have the kitchen sink on the back of the bike, you know. So why? What's the point? And it's much more enjoyable if you're lightweight. And and um, so that I, I take inspiration from those sorts of uh, encounters with people. And 
And yeah. tell us about how you do your planning. For example, now you're planning a trip. Remind me, is it the Silk Road that you're planning for? or? Um, no, I, I hope to cycle the uh, Highway G219. It runs from Kashi or Kashgar to Lhasa in Tibet. Now, unfortunately, it's very difficult to cycle there at the moment because the Chinese are making it very hard. Uh, but there's ways of sort of wor working with the red tape and do it sort of in an official context, but still have the sort of autonomy in the in the region to uh, to do your own thing. But uh, yeah, if you want to cycle that uh, in a sort of a lightweight setup, then you know need to really know the route well and where all the the services are and and uh, the water sources and those sorts of things and the camping spots and. You need to know the altitudes, you know, when you encounter the passes and when you encounter the sort of the valleys where you have lower altitudes where you can recuperate a little bit. So when you go into those sorts of areas, then, um, yeah, if you want to run a light setup, then you really need to do your homework because then otherwise you need to bring all that extra gear to have the, the contingency uh, to to, uh, and to deal with the situation when you... Uh, don't have any any resources. Uh, and how are you actually doing that planning? How are you finding out where there's water in, in the middle of Tibet? It doesn't yeah. seem like you can't open a lonely planet and just say, well, there's water. Um, yeah, no, there's there are some guidebooks. Yeah? Yeah, there is a guidebook. Um, I think it's called Cycling in Tibet. Um, and that uh, list sort of describes that route really well uh, in, in uh, down-to-day stages. And um, and then there's travel logs on the internet. So obviously the internet is a great source of information. Um, and then what I do is I I, uh, I cycle with a GPS. So I have the the mapping software. Um, I have a mapping software of China, and that um, works with an overlay on Google Maps. So you can just zoom into all the places and then put in all your Waypoints and uh, and you, then you know exactly, or more or less exactly, and, and you can be pretty accurate. I, I can, you know, on a, on a on a that is sort of a fifty sixty day cycle route. Um, I can I can have four or five uh, waypoints on a day with all the different things that I um, that I will be looking for on on those particular days. And then uh, in advance, you can also know the stretches where you might have issues, where you need to take that extra bladder of water because there's not, not going to be anything, you know, in the foreseeable future. So, yeah, if you do, if you do all that homework properly, then, then uh, that, that can save you a lot of, lot of weight and uh, allow you to cycle more dif uh, distance. How do you handle it when you are in a situation where you need to take on more food and more water? Do you just have, do you carry a water bladder with you? Is that part of your limited setup that you have the capacity to carry more water? Or do you just go get plastic bottles from a shop? Yeah, that's, that's, that's important that you always have um, extra payloads, you know, that you have space in the bags left for that sort of stuff. So the big mistake that a lot of people make is that they start off cycling away from home with panniers that are almost at the point of bursting because then they haven't yet put all the food in there and usually they, they set off with a you know uh, a roll of biscuits and a couple of apples and they think oh i'm gonna you know to a cycle and then there's no space in the in the bag so you should almost start with half full pannier bags and then 
you'll, you'll notice you'll accum- accumulate a lot uh, when you start cycling. And that's a danger too, because you always need to sort of keep checking what you've got in your pannier bags. It's very easy to end up with, uh, you know, food that you're never eating or extra find- clothes that you've bought, but you but then you're not wearing your old stuff or stuff like that. So. Do you find sometimes that you start out with, say, 8 kilograms at home and you come home and you have 15 kilograms? Or <laughs> No, that's, that's another um, tip or trick that I do. I, I do send a lot home. Always end up with taking stuff that I don't need. Somehow I still do that. So usually after a week I, I have a little parcel of four, four, three, 400 grams of stuff that is going. Somehow I, I, got, I did take that extra T-shirt or... I took something in my first aid kit. So after a week, I normally go through everything again. Um, and then I'll just send stuff away. And then I like to sometimes buy stuff on the road and then occasionally just send it back. How so, do you determine when you're sitting there saying, OK, it's the end of the first week and I want to send something home? How do you determine what you send home? Yeah, it's, Because on a longer trip, you can say, oh, I haven't used that for two months. But on a shorter trip, after only a week, how do you know that's not going to be useful next week yeah usually once you're a few days into a trip you you almost have almost figured out already what what you sometimes you think oh i'll take that because i'm going to use it some something like i'll take an mp3 player or i'll take the little speaker for my mp3 player as it you know it turns out that you're actually not using it you're always using your headphones so why keep walking around with a little speaker in your bag so and i i always sort of am tempted to try new things and then Along the way, I figure out that you know it's actually not not what I envisaged. Uh, sort of, it would be for for what I intended to bring it for, and uh, so yeah, that always happens. And or I think oh, it's it's going to be cold when I get there, and and then it's not, and then you have two hats, and then I'll just send one back. Or um, do you ever send things ahead? Do you ever take a lot of stuff to a destination and then ship boxes ahead to points and pick them no, up? No, I've never done that. No, no, I've never done that. No, but um, no, it's definitely a way of, of, of doing it. But you, I would be careful with doing that in um, in certain places, you know, especially third world countries because uh, postal services are incredibly unreliable. Things just don't turn up. It's, it usually works well sending stuff back from third world countries but um, I've tried sending stuff to friends in Nepal just never get there and uh, and maybe places like Bangkok I, I would have a bit more confidence uh, in that but uh, you have to really be careful where you're going to send stuff to yeah if you were to do for example the Great Divide mountain bike route that, that is that is quite well known that it's easy to send stuff to post post offices and then and then um, post restant uh, collect them there but if it's uh, parcels with content, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't re- recommend sending those to to uh, poorer places. Letters and stuff is perfectly fine. Well, yeah, when I started traveling in the nineties, there wasn't so much internet, and that's when people used to send me postrestant uh, letters. And it's great, you know, receiving that kind of stuff when you've been on the road for months, and and suddenly you get postcards from home, and uh, it's really heartwarming. But that's not no longer necessary. But uh, anybody who's been in these places probably understands what I what <laughs> I mean. So. Obviously, lightweight touring works really well for you. You found mm. a, a niche there that makes you happy, and you're mm. happy and content with the routine. Do you think that there that it would be for everyone, or are there some types of people who maybe 
no matter how hard they tried, would just never be happy, lightweight touring. There's so many types of bicycles, and I, I'm not sure, but I sometimes get the impression that cyclists are a sort of pretty self-minded breed. Touring, touring cycling, I never come across um, people with the same setup, uh, except for the sort of the, maybe the very traditional four or five ort leaps uh, and the tubus racks. You know that all the Germans do that, obviously, and a lot of Dutch people. But as soon as it's other nationalities, then it becomes a really mixed, varied. Uh, but I, I met this guy uh, once in uh, Chile, and his name was an Italian guy. He had a, a huge belly. And uh, his, his name was Ferrari, and uh, he, he, <laughs> he, he spoke really fast English, like, in, like he would speak Italian, but then English. And he, um, he said, I don't cycle on tarmac. Um, my bike is not made to cycle on tarmac. And he even had a rubber boat with him strapped to the back of his, his um, across his pannier, so he could cross uh, lakes and rivers. And he, um, he did a lot of research, and he... Uh, he always was looking out for new power lines and then he would try and follow the surface roads along the power lines. And then in order to do that, he would have to cross you know, lakes, rivers, mountains, uh, whatnot. And as soon as he would hit tarmac, he'd stop and he'd hitchhike. <laughs> and, uh, so he was a real character, but a really fascinating guy. And uh, he had so much gear on that bike, I, I didn't believe it. And... And the best thing was that he had an aluminium Cannondale frame, and he had a lot of experience. He he'd been doing that for you know for decades. He was an older guy, and um, and he chose an aluminium Cannondale frame. And then then for me, you know, this whole idea about oh, you have to have a steel frame because they're they're the, the thing you can fix on the road, and aluminium is you know is uh, metal fatigue and and it won't hold out. There he was, you know, he was carrying maybe 60, 70 kgs on the bike and on an aluminium frame, and it was perfectly fine on dirt roads. So there's so many, um, also so many myths and stories in the whole sort of uh, touring community about what, what's, what's good and what's bad. Um, also, for example, I, I love riding with suspension forks. No, I, I've hit at speed so many potholes that I thought if I hadn't had a suspension fork now, you know, I would have lost the bike for sure. You know, there's no way I could have held it, uh, held it, or I'd be on a on a dirt road descent and I'd really sort of like it would be standing on the pedals, you know, like uh, and feel like oh, like almost like a mount of a, like a, a motorbike. So. Uh, so that, that's the way the bike would behave going down the mountain, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'd hate, you know, having to slow down constantly because because I'd have a rigid uh, front fork that would otherwise throw me throw me off the handlebars. And uh, <laughs> um, so I, I really enjoy that uh, type of cycling. And uh, no shop or uh, touring bike manufacturer will ever sell you that because you know it's too the whole sort of warranty issues around that and yeah suspension forks they need more maintenance and you know 95 percent of the people there they're not comfortable uh, with that or, or sort of can do that themselves but if you do you know your homework then you can you can do that all yourself even on the on the road you know you can just buy your weight 10 or weight 15 uh, gearbox oil and 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 clean your fork out and uh yeah it's half a day work but you know you have a rest day sometimes anyway so a work day in uh, yeah, the campground. <laughs> yeah 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 yes that's great fun so is there one piece of advice you'd like to leave people with 
For touring, what's one thing you've learned over the years that you'd like to pass on? Well, well, if you if you want to reduce weight, then I think the, the key is to start packing with a kitchen skill next to your panniers and not doing the evening, evening before you leave, but start doing it a couple of months before and then, you know, evaluate everything that you're taking um, and then do a practice runs as well. Do Maybe go out for a weekend camping trip with everything that you're going to take on that four or five month trip that you're going to do and then see if things work for you. And um, yeah, and, and, the, and the strange thing is that uh, lightweight gear costs more, so you get less for more. It's it's a really weird uh, <laughs> idea. Although, um, well, you get more distance for your money, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. If if, it, but the, the thing is that so if you want to go really light, then you need to start looking at all these exotic things, like these exotic fabrics that they use for. Uh, technical garments and equipment and and materials and and uh, but they, and then they cost money. So sometimes I start expressing the weight savings in a, in a monetary value, and then so I had maybe years that I would say, okay, if I save a hundred grams and it costs me twenty uh, euros more, then you know that's the maximum I'm going to spend more to reduce that amount of weight on that sort of. You had a weight budget. Yeah, yeah, a weight sort of versus money budget, and and now that's a little bit more. So now maybe I'm, I'm in order to reduce a hundred grams, I'm spending maybe seventy euros, um, and sometimes more. But that you know, then it's a bit, it gets a bit extravagant. But um, yeah, but that's sort of the way I'm looking at it. So then then I can make uh, an honest decision. Sort of, is it is it reasonable to to try and reduce weight there when it costs me that much or, or when I reduce weight there and it costs me that much. So, oh, I see. It helps you compare things. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes, uh, you know, I'm tempted to buy a tent that is 100 grams lighter, but I'll spend 250 euros on that. Whereas if I um, if I left the T-shirt at home, then, you know, that would be 250. 50 euros saved because it's the same amount of weight saving so so i'm looking at it a little bit like that it's maybe a, a bit too calculated uh, probably a bit too calculated for most people no i like so. it actually i like it because it doesn't yeah maybe it, puts it doesn't make into, sense it yeah. makes put stuff into context you know yeah. sort of uh, that you don't get carried away in one thing and then and then just sort of slack be slack on the other thing and then you know what you know why you're actually then making the effort in one area and not in the other sort of thing. So mm. it's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. and you're quite a, a fit person, so you don't need to lose weight because I always, <laughs> I always read on the uh, forums, you know, a comment, yeah, yeah, comment yeah. among cyclists is if you really want to go lightweight cycling, you should lose 10 kilos. You yeah. know, that's the easiest yeah, 10 kilos to... <laughs> I'd, I'd be dead if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> thank I'd, you very, very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you too. Stein de Klerk. Well, I definitely want to thank Stein for taking the time to come halfway across Holland and have dinner with us and share all those tips. We've certainly been bearing his advice in mind as we've been packing for our trip to Spain. For example, can you believe that all the way around the world we carried two cotton sleeping bag liners that we made ourselves, but they weighed almost a kilo, so we finally went out to a camping shop and bought ourselves two silk liners, which weigh just 100 grams each, so that's a massive savings. They're also about one-third of the size of the sleeping bag liners that we've been carrying around all this time. 
Another thing that we're really cutting back on is clothing. We've traditionally always packed too much clothing. It's a classic travel mistake. So we're really buying now things made out of merino wool, for example, that we can wear several times and that don't get stinky. And that means we have to carry an awful lot less clothing. Just a couple of the things that we're doing, and I don't think we're going to have any problem fitting everything we need into a couple back bags for this trip, which means that hopefully we'll be a whole lot quicker getting up those Spanish mountains. And on that note, I'm off to finish the packing. I hope you're having a wonderful winter wherever you are, or perhaps summer if you're down under in Australia. Why don't you drop us an email and tell us about the bike trips you're taking. And if you have any questions, we're always happy to try and help you answer them. Our email is us at traveling2.com. Until next time, happy cycling. Happy cycling.